Hello from Temple Bar in Dublin. Very welcome to season two of our Tradfest podcast, brought to you by the Temple Bar Company and Falcher Ireland. That opening track there was called Roll with the Punches from Martin Harley, a little different from what we might normally expect to hear from Martin. Over the past few months, we've been speaking to music festivals and artists and musicians from across the globe about their experiences during this uh, COVID-19 Many in the artistic community have been very innovative with their time, but there's no substitute for the live gig in front of a live audience. Today, we're delighted to be talking to the extremely talented guitarist and songwriter and guitar innovator from Britain. That's Martin Harley. Martin, thanks a million for joining us on the podcast. 
Well, thank you very much for having me, Kieran. You were actually born in Cardiff, is that right? That's right. I was born in Cardiff in the in the seventies, and um, my father was racing motorbikes and working in the mountain rescue team. And I was child number two, and my mum suggested that maybe um, he should get a job that didn't uh, involve uh, risking his life. <laughs> uh, and he became an RSPCA man uh, in in Woking in Surrey. So when I was very young, uh, we moved we moved down there. So uh, that's uh, where I spent most of my youth and so does the does the welch blood flow thickly in you ah well it depends who's winning the rugby <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay i get that yeah do you ride a motorbike yourself i do it's um probably runs in tandem with the uh, slight guitar addiction okay um, I, I, I love motorcycles, actually. I just This sounds like the most rock star thing I could possibly say, but it just, it just happened uh, yesterday. I, I had a guitar um, commissioned. I, I commissioned a guitar builder called Patrick Eggle to make me a guitar, and uh, we chose to spray it the same colour as my favourite motorbike. Oh, no. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I know it's terrible, but, uh, you know, um, that, that pleases me greatly. And uh, mo motorcycling is something that uh, gives me a lot of pleasure, both uh, working working on them. I find it quite um, therapeutic. I wasn't sure, actually, because I, I, I saw uh, on Twitter where you had taken a ride up to Patrick Eggle's place to look at the guitar for your, is it is it your cooder caster, you're calling it? Yeah, that's right. And for anyone um, who wants to know what, what that is, there's a, a fantastic influence on me as a guitar player called Rye Cooder. And over the years, he sort of developed his regular Stratocaster guitar to incorporate um, pickups from a lap steel, which is a guitar traditionally played across your lap. And um, between he and David Lindley, they came up with this combination of, of, of the lap steel pickup and something called a Tysco gold foil, which is another pickup that sits near the neck of the guitar. And the combination of those two pickups gives the guitar a very individual sound and it's a sound that um, I, I absolutely love and I've always wanted to uh, get one put together and so that's what inspired that build. Okay well that's right up to date but let's go back a little uh, in your own history let's say in music what got you started I mean your father was into motorcycles and that sort of thing so where did the influence of you getting involved in music come from? Just as a listener, uh, I'm not from a musical family, um, although my grandfather spent a lot of time um, in Ireland and uh, was pretty handy on the squeeze box and, uh, and on the piano. So occasionally he would, um, he would bust that out and, uh, and sing a few sort of traditional tunes. Um, so I always remember that fondly. Um, but I think the thing that really switched me onto music is when I heard slide guitar and that was... Ry Cooder playing on the soundtrack to the film Paris, Texas. He plays a sort of single note, very simple melody over a guy walking across the desert. And I remember the image and the sound happening at the same time, having a really, you know, strong effect on me. And um, I became fairly obsessed with all things sort of sly guitar and started going to blues festivals. And, you know, back in those days, you know, going to the going to the vendor that would be selling cassette tapes of Robert Johnson and, you know, borrowing cassettes from the library of Little Milton and John Lee Hooker and, um, you know, copying them on my, my double cassette deck. Uh, what age would you have been at that time then? I guess about 13, 14. Okay. So quite, quite late. 
Um, and I really started to focus on the guitar uh, quite heavily, you know, 14, 15. Because you were quite young, actually, when you made your first uh, album. Yeah, well, I think it was, it was either 1999 or 2000, so about 27, and I'd been living in a car in Australia, actually, for a year. And um, when I came back from that trip, I felt like I'd, I had a bunch of stories to tell, and... I felt, you know, doing them through song was the uh, was the applicable thing. So I made my first record after that year uh, in the living room of the house I was living uh, in for 250 quid with a, a bunch of borrowed stuff and um, and some good friends. <laughs> I know from the last time that we met, actually, you were in Dublin at Tradfest, and I want to discuss some of that, which you actually, which you described the whole idea of a lap guitar or how it actually how that evolved for you. It's quite interesting. Well, yeah, yeah, I I was living in that car in Australia and I was playing guitar the regular way around and the guitar that I took with me was, was living, you know, obviously in the car and uh, Australia gets uh, pretty hot. So uh, over time, the neck of the guitar just warped and I couldn't push my fingers down onto the fretboard anymore. So um, I turned it round and started playing across my lap, which by no means is a... Uh, an original idea but it was very new to me and uh, as I probably said when we were chatting last time it's slide guitar can be a pretty awful sound until you start getting it uh, right so I think it was a good thing that I was uh, half the world away from anyone's ears at that time. But you so, came yeah. back to England then and decided to have a look and see could you develop on that? Yeah yeah I, I came back and some of the guys that I met in the surfing community in um, Australia had said, hey, look, you know, the kind of music you're playing and writing, that kind of rootsy, folky blues thing, uh, would go down really well in Cornwall. So I, you know, I came back to the UK and started um, sort of travelling down there. And it just seemed to be a good fit at that time, um, the surf community, acoustic, roots music. Um, and so the, the whole thing just started to snowball, really. Um, you know, and then I got the album out and, you know, it's just, I would, we started by busking in the street in Newquay and then eventually bar owners would be coming over and saying, you know, we, <laughs> we'd like to get all these people in our pub. So how about we, uh, we give you some money and you come and play. And I guess it just snowballed in, in a, in a very DIY kind of way. Um, I still try and adopt a fairly DIY approach to music I, I stay in control um i don't have a record company as such you know i have my own record label through which i distribute and, and record but um it's still really just me so you manage all that what about the whole idea of somebody looking after your business and travel and uh, gigs and because you do quite a bit of touring or at least up to this year you did quite a bit of touring yes yeah exactly um I book most of my travel myself. Um, I use different booking agents. They're, they're the people I employ the most. I have different bookers in different regions. So someone would look after Canada, for example. Someone looks after the UK. Someone looks after France. Someone in Portugal. So um, navigating those people is, uh, keeps me busy. And I choose to employ different publicists at different times, depending on the project. So my last record, Roll With The Punches, was quite rock and roll. So, um, you know, I picked um, a publicist that was, you know, more 
versed in that style of music, whereas the albums previous to that were very acoustic affairs. So um, there's there's always there's always those those bits and pieces to do, but um, I feel that I don't I don't really make enough money to be giving too much of it <laughs> away. Okay, okay, okay. Um, I, I get that. Yeah, but it's interesting because uh, it, it means that there is a way of doing it. I'm just thinking about sort of young bands on the scene or young performers on the scene, whether they should be signing up to management companies or doing all of that. You, the way you've worked, it seems to have worked very well for you. A bit like We Banjo 3, actually, from Galway, who toured the States quite a lot. They manage their own affairs, and it's satisfactory for you? Yes, it is. I mean, you also have to be realistic. Like if your manager is taking 20% and your profit margin on the money you're spending is 20 or 30%, you have to work out what's sustainable. And with all the analytics you can get from things like Spotify, from Facebook, you can be hands-on in control at a very low cost um, you you can reach a lot of people. You can see where people are listening to your music, who's downloading, where they're where they're downloading from. Um, you know, you have a lot of market research at your fingertips, and it, it it's inexpensive. Um, so we we have more tools as independent musicians now than we ever have. Um, obviously, we don't have the old fashioned record sales that we used to. And uh, you know, I know that Spotify polarizes a lot of people's opinion in the business. Um, Personally, I, I choose to think of things like Spotify as basically a modern radio. Um, you know, if I get a song on a playlist, like in the name of the blues, um, that has, you know, BB King or Derek Trucks or whoever on it, um, that has great exponential benefits in terms of my listenership. And eventually, I think that filters down to people buying tickets to your shows. Um, but we do, and we have taken a huge cut in revenue generated from um, recorded music, um, which I think can make it harder for people starting up. Um, you have all these tools that can really help you move forward, but at the end of the day, if you're not playing live, you're probably not making that much money. And There's placements in film and video that can be um, lucrative and very useful. Um, but certainly in my world, live shows are, are, are key to my earnings. Well, it's a very interesting take on Spotify because people look to them as the, as the, as, as the great beast that are kind of taking all this income. But you think you, what, you, what you're saying is you can actually make Spotify work for you if you're a small independent uh, business, let's say, like your own. I think so. If I was giving anyone advice, uh, which, which I do sometimes, whether they want it or not, um, <laughs> I would say as an independent artist, you're crazy not to be on Spotify because that's how I listen to music. That's how um, my kids listen to music. That's how so many people do receive um, new new music. And I would worry that if you're not available on those kind of platforms that you're going to get overlooked a little bit. Um, I think at the front end of your career, exposure is, is important. Um, and Spotify is there. It's not going away anytime mm. soon. Um, you know, I'm, I might not agree with, with what it's done to earnings, but I think you have to, or, you know, or can use it to your benefit. Um, 
Well, I think that's interesting and positive too, I think, for artists to hear you saying that, that there is another way of looking at it and making it work for you. I just want to talk now, we're going to talk about some of your, your live uh, performances because certainly you mentioned there uh, Rolling With The Punches, which was your, your new album, and that's the song we played at the start of the podcast today. I was expecting something different because I heard you playing at Tradfest in 2018 with Daniel Kimbrough, and such was the audience reaction. You came back in 2019 and a slightly different setup as well. What about that uh, Daniel Kimbrough combination? You did an album with Daniel live uh, at Southern Ground. Uh, how did that get, how did you get together? What brought you together? Uh, Sam Lewis, uh, a mutual friend and a fantastic songwriter from Nashville, introduced Daniel to me at a music festival called Jamming at Hippie Jacks um, out in the hills of Crawford in Tennessee. And, um, yeah, Daniel sort of, you know, he mentioned he'd heard some of my music and if, if I wanted a bass player, you know, uh, for my live show at this uh, festival, you know, he'd be happy to jump up for, for a couple of tunes. And I, I think I was quite wary because sometimes people sort of say, you know, can I jump up? Let's, you know, let's jam. And I, I, I sometimes think this, this could be good, this could be terrible. So I sort of said to Daniel, well, you know, let's run through a couple of, couple of my tunes you know around the around around the back of the the main stage and um it became frighteningly apparent after about 10 seconds that daniel was better at playing my songs than me and um he jumped up on stage and his ability to improvise and to really do things on the spur of the moment um was something that i immediately enjoyed and so we kept playing a few a few little live shows together during the period that I was in America and I thought before I go home it would be really fun to try and bottle some of that um, you know that initial magic where you're not too rehearsed we weren't touring hard together we played two or three live shows together and uh, we decided to hire a, a really nice studio called Southern Ground uh, which is Zach Brown's studio in downtown Nashville we, I could only afford to hire it for one day and um, <laughs> Like consumer professionals, because we di we didn't know each other that well, yeah. so we went out the night before and said, "Oh, let's have you know a couple of beers and you know relax into this." And then we went out in downtown Nashville and just drank absolutely far too much. Woke up <laughs> in the morning feeling terrible, uh, dragged ourselves into the studio, recorded sort of twelve, fifteen songs, which quite frankly sounded terrible. And the the studio mama, as she calls herself, Rebecca, there said, "Look, I'm gonna feed you some good food. Um, and there's a bottle of whiskey there. I suggest you have a few sips of that." So uh, we <laughs> we drank some rather tasty uh, Woodford Reserve, and then we went back in and uh, played another tw the same twelve songs, and they sounded a lot better in the afternoon. So uh, we did, we kept those, and that was how that album came to be. And like some of the best happy accidents that have happened in my life, um, it, it was just really well received. I think it's a very honest recording. Um, and in a world where everything can sometimes be over-polished and many decisions can be made in post-production, um, this is just what happened in a room um, on an afternoon. And uh, the reaction to it in Canada especially was, was amazing. And off the back of that, we toured um, Canada in 2016 and it was super successful you know just a, a, a real a really nice lucky break um so yeah that's how the album came to be and uh we made another album together after that called static in the wires and we are currently working um on a remote album with the guy 
that introduced us. So Sam Lewis, Daniel Kimbrough and myself um, are making an album uh, due for tour and release in March 2021. I was supposed to be in Nashville um, in September recording that, but um, what we're going to do is rent respective studio spaces on either side of the Atlantic. I'll work in the mornings and they can uh, add add their parts in the afternoon and uh, and we can at least feel sort of connected that way. Mm. Uh, is would is that to be a more difficult uh, task? Because I, the impression I get, of, certainly when you played in Tradfest in 2018, there was a chemistry between you live on stage that will you find that easy to recreate if you're working remotely? I don't think we can, you know, recreate the exact thing that happens when you are taking risks uh, and, uh, you know, playing in a live environment. There are so many different aspects there that... Uh, can add and sometimes subtract from a performance, but we do know each other, all three of us know each other's music quite well. So I, I think that um, it will be something great in a slightly different way, maybe slightly more calculated and more time to um, expand on arrangements. One of the great things about Daniel is he's um, a multi-instrumentalist and a, and, a, and a really good singer as well. And so... Uh, I think this method of recording um, remotely will will mean he can, uh, you know, play a bit of banjo or um, add some guitar, and we can expand the sonic palette a little bit. <laughs> well, you ex- expanded the sonic palette actually with your most recent <laughs> album of 2019, which, as I said, I wasn't expecting. How did that evolve? Um, I think. About once every four albums, I get like a, a rock and roll itch. Okay. Um, I, I think I'm on a heavy rotation of, 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 of blues influences, basically. You know, I, sometimes I find myself gravitating towards a very direct, honest acoustic recording. And then I sort of go back and start listening to Taj Mahal's first record and, uh, and just wanting sort of the push of a band. And um, with Roll With The Punches, I just wanted to get up, to be standing up, to, to be working with a drummer and to be playing in, you know, standing venues. I just I just wanted to scratch the rock and roll itch. I think that's that's all there is to it. Um, okay. I, as we've been talking about the Cuda caster guitar, that's very much an electric sound and Rai Cuda's uh, uh, influence um, was pretty strong. So along with the sort of development of that, that guitar um, came that more electric sound. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I never feel like I want to commit to doing just one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's a thread that connects the music together, um, but I, I don't want to create, a, you know, a, a sound for myself that I'm unwilling to move away from. Um, okay. You know, as much as I like a lot of traditional, a lot of acoustic, um, a lot of blues music, um, I'm as likely to be listening to, you know, Queens of the Stone Age as, as I am, you know, Snooks Eaglin or, um, you know, old Delta Blues. No, uh, the song itself, of course, Roll With The Punches, uh, certainly could have been written for today or for the last six months, but that's quite some punch. Uh, the music industry has taken... How has it affected you? We know it has affected your sort of solo or your performance 
I mentioned at the top here that you know there's nothing quite like the live performance in front of a live audience. But how? Uh, what was your initial reaction to it? Um, I was on tour in Europe, and there, I don't think anyone really realised the severity. So you know, it started looking increasingly unlikely that the rest of my tour could or would continue. Um, and so I got straight on the phone with my booking agent and there was this sort of strange thing where we're like, well, let's reschedule everything for two, three months down the line. Um, this should all be done by then. And then, like a lot of artists, there's this, you know, constant snowball of rescheduling that uh, has just gone on and on, um, you know, and for good reason, you know, and so it should. But um, it's affected me, uh, yeah, by, you know, completely shutting off um, any revenue generate from, from, from live shows, which is really where I make my money. So I, in terms of work, it's been, it's been pretty grim. Um, but on a personal level, I would actually say that uh, the whole period has been really positive for me. Um, I've been forced to um, be stationary. It's the first time I've been off the road for more than three or four months in the last two decades. Um, I've spent a lot of time with my family, a lot of time with my kids. Um, my youngest daughter's about to start school and my oldest will be going back to school. Um, and just, you know, being, being available full time for them is, is just amazing. And I can pick up an instrument and write and involve myself in music in a purely creative way rather than splitting my time between writing and being creative but then staying what I would call sort of gig fit being able to play you know any one of 80 songs I've written you know a live show that requires a fairly constant amount of of, of practice so I've been able to able to shelve that and when I pick up a guitar now it, it's primarily just to write or to try and develop a new technique or um, just you know expand um you know my tone somehow um so i feel like it's it's really recharged my batteries and made me feel very connected um to the creative side of music um which i guess in some ways sounds crazy but when you are out touring all the time you're probably not sitting in the hotel room after the show writing some of your greatest songs maybe some people do but you know you're you're out there you've done the creative part and you're selling for want of a better expression you're kind of selling your project your product you're taking it out to the people you've done the creative part you're out there uh, putting in good performances you know connecting with people meeting people playing music enjoying the whole live thing but it's not always that creative so so what i've i've really ben benefited from is the time off the road and uh and a bit of int introspection and some development of my songwriting and my techniques yeah, I find that interesting that you said developing a new techniques. I thought you had all the techniques on the guitar for sure. Never, <laughs> never. I, I think one of the great blessings of playing an instrument is that it's a never-ending learning curve. Even if you're learning to play less, um, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be done with this. I will be 90 years old and I'll still be learning. Um, you know, there's, yeah, no way. <laughs> no, no, no way I'm done yet there's okay, so, so much well to learn just yet. well I suppose it's not when you'll be getting new guitars uh, we did speak there about uh, your trip to uh, Patrick Eggles place. are you a collector of guitars? Uh, 
I don't think I like the way guitar collector sounds. Because oh, it sounds like... Are, are you an accumulator <laughs> of guitars? <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely an accumulator of guitars. Um, but I don't collect them and uh, stick them in a box and say, hey, that'll be worth uh, 20% more in, 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 in 20 years. I do try and buy guitars when they come up at the right place or maybe I'm touring in America and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I pick up a national guitar that's, you know, just it's it's at the right place, you know, right time, right place. So I do, I have got a lot of guitars, but a lot of them came from car boot sales or junk shops that, you know, they're probably worth a hundred quid. And if I sold them and then I saw it again for a hundred quid, I'd probably buy it again. So, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I think a guitar slut would be a more accurate way of describing my relationship with guitars. <laughs> That's your description and I leave it with you actually. Uh, so you haven't been on the road, but have you done some work online? I've done a few online things. Um, I struggle to warm to the online thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there saying, you know, musicians need to sort of adapt or die <laughs> in terms of how they're getting music out uh, to people. And um, so I've dipped my toe in the water of that, but I do struggle to... Um, you know, to feel that connection. Um, and uh, I don't know, I almost feel more self-conscious, you know, in front of a computer screen. Um, whereas, you know, in a room with people, I feel like, uh, you know, you've, you've made a deal with those people. Um, they paid their 10 or their 20 quid to come and sit in a room to be entertained by you. And you, um, you fulfill that contract by trying to put yourself in the best frame of mind to deliver the best performance you can. Um, and something about being, being there in that situation makes that, um, makes that connection work, work well for me. I find I, I, I put myself, uh, I put my best foot forward in that situation. Um, that doesn't mean I try not <laughs> consciously yeah. not to be good playing online, but, um, I, I struggle I just struggle to connect a little bit, but I've done some bits and the bits that I've done, um, uh, especially I did one with a, uh, a venue called the live rooms in Saltaire, which, um, clearly has a, um, a really strong volume, uh, you know, uh, fan base as a, as a small venue. And, um, so they sold a bunch of tickets and there was a really, uh, there was a really good sort of feel about that. It almost, there was a localized feel about that somehow it felt quite personal. And I've done some where, um, um, I, from a basically a, a broadcast studio where there's a screen in front of me, there's a five camera shoot, and whoever's listening can uh, can be talking to me in real time. And so I have friends from all over the over the world sort of tuning in and saying, "Hey, man, this is Sam from Nashville," and um, someone will say, "I'll play that song," and you know, uh, I actually uh, I thrived in that environment because the, that gave me some of the connection yeah. um, back. But largely, I've been staying quiet and thinking because I like the live shows so much that I'm, I'm going to sit tight, use this time to write and to record, to try and make some positive creative decisions and to have a body of work to, to come away from this time with so that uh, I, can, I can reflect on this time in a, in a positive light. That's uh, very positive, actually, to hear that, that you are writing in a, in a positive fashion. There's a couple of things I want to ask you about maybe what you're listening to uh, during the lockdown, but in, that'll be in a couple of minutes' time. I just wanted to go back over uh, one or two things. The last time you came to Tradfest, actually, you performed, I think it was, was almost by accident, did you, with uh, Stephen James Smith. You hadn't expected it, certainly, when you were coming over. 
No, what a wonderful gentleman he is, and what a creative, uh, what a creative mind. Um, yeah, yeah, we turned up and uh, at the venue at the Pepper Canister Church, and uh, we went for a spot of breakfast and uh, had a chat. And uh, in the sound check, Stephen was like, "You know, we should do something together." I was like, "Let's go for it." And uh, yeah, so uh, he played some Baran and. Um, yeah, I I love that. I love that. I love that stuff. Um, I I played some improvised guitar over a poem he was reciting. Um, that was a first for me. And um, much like my relationship with Daniel, I sort of like being on stage with um, the risk of of failure during um, you know uh, <laughs> during something that hopefully is fairly innovative and uh, spur of the moment. Um, and that's that's exactly what happened uh, with with Stephen and I playing together. So uh, I thought that was a wonderful combination of acts to put, um, you know, on the bill. You know, a spoken word poet and a sort of a sly guitarist. Um, yeah, wonderful memory. Yeah, because I, I met you both actually after that. You were both fairly high after thinking, God, Jesus, what have we just done, really? <laughs> uh, yes. it's a, it was really Sunday afternoon when I when I met you after that gig, and I just thought it was brilliant. Great to see artists you know, kind of basking in after their own performance, having enjoyed each other's company. Oh, isn't it wonderful mm. when uh, you can walk away from that saying, hey, that was, you know, that was my job. But, you know, I was there and, uh, you know, we shared uh, a, an experience that, uh, were, you know, it's not repeated. It wasn't a regurgitated, highly rehearsed um, form. It was, uh, you know, it, it happened there. It happened then. We did that, in a, you know, a room of, three, four hundred people and um, we all got to share that experience and, 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 and what a buzz. Fantastic. Uh, by the way, do you intend to tour with Sam and Daniel after you complete your album? Yes. Assuming yes. everything is as it should be. Yeah, yeah, we do. We've got um, the tours all booked. It has been for some time now. Um, something we needed to schedule because everyone is busy with their um, respective careers. Um, Daniel's been touring um, with the Transatlantic Sessions just kept him really busy and he plays in the Jerry Douglas band so those guys are on the road a lot he also plays in the Earls of Leicester and Sam Lewis is an independent artist touring quite prolifically as well so we had to get that penciled a good year in advance and I will be very upset if uh, we can't tour it I mean obviously we will do what is required for uh, you know the safety of, of what feels like mankind at the moment sometimes <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, that that's penciled, and uh, that would be in March 2021. So um, that that would that would all be on my website, um, you know, uh, coming out. Uh, your website. All that is would be announced. MartinHarley.com. MartinHarley.com. Important that people should know that information. I was just curious about one other activity you did uh, back in 2010, and that was that you did uh, a bicycle tour. I think over 31 days. Was it? Blues Gone Green tour? Yes. What was that about? I had just been touring a lot and I was just driven, driven up and down too many motorways in a, in a, in a rental, um, you know, Ford Transit van. And I just wondered to myself if I could do it in a different way, be a bit more adventurous and feel a bit more connected. So I decided to, um, get a cargo bike essentially put my two guitars and all the equipment I needed to film this trip and uh, and uh, keep keep myself fairly clean 
Um, and I packed it all onto this cargo bike and I did, I think, uh, over 31 days, I did 29 shows starting up uh, in Newcastle and cycling, you know, anywhere between 30 and sort of 60 miles a day. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and playing shows across the country in a, in a completely carbon neutral, um, in a carbon neutral way. And I met so many interesting characters and um yeah it was brilliant there, there was the odd day where the wind was blowing in the wrong direction and the rain was going sideways and i wondered why on earth i was doing this but um i finished at the um eden project in cornwall which seemed quite fitting and the, the strangest thing about the whole thing is when i got to the end i just didn't want to stop i i, I could have just gone world tour I, there's a nice rhythm to getting up in the morning, eating your healthy breakfast because you could tell what the food was doing to your body. So you eat porridge, you go cycling, you cycle till lunchtime, you should have a big greasy fry up two hours into the ride. You're like, Ugh. So you have this connection to your fitness, your connection to the environment. And, uh, you know, I, I felt really engaged and, and alive doing that. And I could have, I could have kept doing that. And, okay, well, at this remove then, 10 years later, would you do it again? Absolutely. Would you? The missus would probably leave me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I would like to, uh, I'd like to incorporate motorcycling as well. Um, okay. I, I'm thinking of uh, fabricating some kind of uh, device for carrying guitars around on a motorcycle, maybe even a sidecar. But, um, yeah. You spend so much time travelling as a musician. I think B.B. King said, um, I play music for free. They pay me for the uh, inconvenience of travel. And... Uh, I, I, you know, I feel certainly after the last two decades, um, I could make the travel, you know, more fun. If it's the travel that's, you know, getting me down or, or you know, I get bored of being in the airport or, um, you know, I could make a positive change to make myself more connected and, uh, you know, get on a motorbike, get on a bicycle. 100% I'd do it again. And take your cooler caster out to meet the rest of the world then? <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it's all shiny and new at the moment. So, yeah. Well, it matches oh. your motorcycle. <laughs> it does. Yeah. It most certainly does. It's 1977 Nür Nürburg metallic green. Okay, for, for those that would be of that type of mind. Okay, <laughs> I asked you, I was going to ask you about three songs or what you've been listening to, three songs, three performers. Who have you been listening to, apart from all the practice you're doing yourself, of course, during this period of lockdown? Uh, a new-ish discovery for me was actually Philip Glass. Um, I think um, I think it just popped up. Something I was listening to um, might have been a TV show, might have just been uh, you know something on on the dreaded Spotify. But um, uh, there's a there's a, a song on Glassworks called Flow, which is uh, for those who don't know, uh, Philip Glass is. It, is a very modern composer. Um, he uses orchestras, um, for want of a more creative way of describing it, he uses an orchestra to make almost sort of synthesised, um, very modern-sounding music. Um, and there's a song called Flow, which is, is, is really, really busy, and um, it's quite an assault on the senses. But I actually found it really calming um, in this sort of current you know uh, in this sort of lockdown situation uh, I, I found the chaos in it um quite calming it's a hard thing to explain it's it's an it's a new style for me 
um, and he does a lot of uh, rotating phrases that sort of bump into each other and um, they change timing and they change feel throughout the course of these sort of short experimental uh, sounding things. So um, that's got me really engaged and it's making me think about music in a different way. Um, so that's that's one of the things. Junior Kimbrough, who is um, from Mississippi, um, he's a blues, was a, a, a blues singer and he has a style which is very synonymous with Mississippi hill country blues. Um, you can very much tell Mississippi hill country blues from, say, Delta blues, even though they're uh, geographically separated by, you know, less than 40 or 50 miles, um, you know, before people travelled around a lot, um, you know, in, in the sharecropping and everything that went sort of past that, you, you, you get certain sounds from certain parts of Mississippi. And this Mississippi hill country blues is quite often... Um, staying on one chord, quite often a guitar and a drummer playing together. Um, and a great example of, of that style with Junior Kimbrough is a song called Meet Me in the City, which it just it, it blows my mind how effective um, every aspect of that song is at the same time being simple but being impossible to replicate. It sounds um, like the complete opposite to flow. <laughs> it is exactly the opposite to flow. Um, but what, what it is, I think someone could dismiss it and say, oh, you know, that's simple, that's easy. And uh, to which I would say, oh, well, you know, do it then. <laughs> Cause it, it's such a hard style to, to capture. Um, it's so free flowing and it's so easy sounding, but it's impossible to replicate. So I, I, I've been studying, you know, uh, studying that to help me with, my songwriting and sometimes to you know make me think that something doesn't have to be more chordally complicated or, or doesn't have to have a middle eight doesn't have to fit the the standard you know approach to songwriting a formulaic approach to songwriting you know if you get it right it can be simple and and and, and trying to study the effectiveness of, of the simplicity of that kind of arrangement so that would that would be a, a key learning song for me at the moment and then you know snooks eaglin is probably the last one um i heard him singing saint james infirmary blues on on bob dylan's uh podcast and i hadn't heard of him before and he was an acoustic player that bust on the street of new orleans um and what he did that was really interesting to me was very much like what robert johnson did he encapsulated um current music of the time in the 30s and 40s but was an acoustic player so you know ostensibly in a, in a, in a blues um, genre but there's elements of New Orleans um, you know dance bands elements of jug band elements of people like you know Woody Guthrie so he's very a very complete uh, performer for me but his the, the particular song that I always go back to him for St. James and Vermary Blues, just a, a really um, fantastic rendition that seems to uh, uh, in, encapsulate the, the, the sullen message of that particular song. Interesting collection of music that you've been listening to, I must say, during this lockdown, and you've been practicing as well to develop some of those techniques that you haven't quite developed yet, as you said to me. 
Uh, Martin, it's been fantastic and an education speaking with you. I really do hope that you get back to Tradfest again. Possibly 2022 is what we would look at, but it would be fantastic to have you back in Dublin. Oh, I would absolutely love to come back. I've always had uh, fantastic experiences there and uh, playing with Daniel was a, was a high point and playing with Stephen, you know. Um, so, yeah, hopefully we can make that work and hopefully we'll all uh, be out in the big wide world safely next year and uh, we, can, we can get back to uh, sharing music. Well, our catchphrase uh, at Tradfest is together again in music, so hopefully we will do that in the not-too-distant future. Martin, thanks a million. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We look forward to when we're all together again in music at next year's Tradfest, provisionally set for the 27th through the 31st of January 2021. And while we're all waiting for the day when it's safe to travel again, you can fill your heart with Ireland by going to ireland.com. Ireland.